the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is Wednesday, December 8th, 2021. As we head into our third hour, our phone number, it's the only math you need to know, 602-508-0960. That joke is an old Chevy Chase line for those that uh, wonder why I keep saying it. Why do you keep saying it was my understanding there would be no math? It was Chevy Chase uh, pretending to be or pretending to be. What am I, 12? He was acting the part of Gerald Ford, Jerry Ford, President Ford, in a debate with Jimmy Carter in New York in um, Saturday Night Live. It was my understanding that there would be no math. That's what it is. There's the line. That was from uh, 1976, and and they were doing a send-up of the debate between Ford and uh, Carter. Funny in those days, if you ever go back and watch those SNL skits, they didn't find actors who looked like who they were imitating, and the actors didn't make an effort to do so. You could look far and wide and find a lot of people that could kind of get the Jerry Ford look. And certainly you could do it with makeup in a, in a, I don't know, whatever, the skull rug of some kind, whatever they call the makeup artists call, you know, some kind of wig. You could do it, theatrical wig. They just didn't care. They just didn't do it. The, I, I guess the theory was the actors and actresses were so funny in their own right. You didn't need to, I guess. I don't know. I just don't know. Isn't it funny how quickly things go away? Remember what a big story Alec Baldwin was, speaking of actors on Saturday Night Live who portray people? He famously portrayed Donald Trump. Isn't it interesting how fast that story went away? I didn't pull the trigger. Isn't it that that really went away fast? All right. So we raised an interesting question in the last... I think it's interesting. Are there more love songs... Are there more songs about falling in love or falling out of love? Hold that thought while you may develop it. I haven't gotten a specific answer, but I have a pretty good thesis on it based on some research by our crack research staff. Um, crime. Crime. I was talking about it in the first uh, – in my mono, in my opening a couple hours ago. And it's all over Fox News, issues of crime in America and – you can find stories on it online and how much violent crime is stalking America and Americans. But I don't even want to put it that way. I mean, I, I hate to put it almost as a passive voice, third person type thing. Crime is stalking America. Crime is hitting an all time high. It's not. Yes, crime, crime is what criminals engage in, but it's criminals. It's criminals who are doing this. It's not as if there's no human action behind it. The use of language is important here. And so the AP, no, I'm sorry, ABC News just put out their story on it. Twelve major cities hit all-time homicide records. And I saw a lefty congresswoman, I think it was Ayanna Presley. I think it was Ayanna Presley. It was a squad member. 
uh, about two days ago saying, well, the Republicans are obviously going to make the election about crime and they have their talking points on it. We don't have our talking points on it. We have a body count. That's what we have. We have stores closing. We have people being put out of work. That's what we have. It's not a talking point. And you can't blame a political party or a politician whose job is to write, change, amend, or improve laws for trying to do so on a major issue that people care about. And I get, certainly, how certain Congress people are immune to the threats of violent crime. They don't see it on a day-to-day basis. Many of them have their own security. Many of them live behind their own security gates or walls or communities, gated communities, I guess would be one phrase for it. Many of them have guards at the entrances to those communities. They don't have the same problems that we have, and they're protected by federal statutes that other people, individuals, are not. So it's perhaps easier for them to say, well, that's just a talking point. It's not a talking point to the city that is destroyed, the home that is burglarized, or the person that is shot. It's not a talking point to them. And that's why I was making such a big deal about victims' rights the other day. I think we spend in talking about crime far more time and far too much energy <coughs> excuse me, on defendants' rights <coughs> without thinking about why they're defendants in the first place. In other words, victims' rights. And victims can be individuals. Victims can be communities. When's the last time you visited San Francisco? When's the last time you visited Seattle? When's the last time you visited Portland? When's the last time you went to downtown Los Angeles? These were once great, beautiful places to go. I was talking to someone vacationing in uh, Florida over the summer from here, and they said, we used, we used to go to Southern California, but what's the point now? What's the point? Yes, it's easier to get there, but it's not easier to vacation there. It's not a prettier place. It's not a safer place. It's not an economically more vibrant place. And it's not, frankly, a healthier place either. I'm talking about COVID. Twelve major cities hit all-time homicide records. And, 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 and what bothers me, Philadelphia, by the way, I was mentioning Los Angeles and San Francisco's statistics in my, in my, opening, in my opening segment uh, three hours ago. In Philadelphia, 500 homicides a year. 500 homicides a year. And we just blink at that, don't we? We just blink at that. Los Angeles had record homicide numbers last year and is looking to surpass it this year. Chicago is on track and will reach 600 homicides this year. Hopefully not, but it looks like it will. I mean, let's pray not. Please. Yes, I mean, there's not much more we can do from here except 
except hope for the best and pray for the best for cities we don't live in and have abilities to change the, the structures in. And you get conditioned to this stuff. Oh, well, just the fancy stores are being broken into. It's not true. It's not true. It's drug stores. It's mom and pop stores. It's small businesses as well. Yeah, sure, some big ones, big corporations. You bet. You bet. But the people who work there, the people who work there are not the owners of those stores. They're wage-working people, hourly wage-working people and commission-working people. And the communities depend on those things. You can destroy cities. You can destroy little civilizations with crime. That's where the broken windows theory came from, by the way. James Q. Wilson, we were talking about that the other day. I don't want people to misunderstand what the broken windows theory is. It's not that you make laws against breaking windows. There are already laws against that. It's that you focus on it because there's no such thing as a small crime for several reasons. One, you allow small crimes. This is the Wilson thesis. You allow small crimes to fester. You get used to that. You get conditioned to that. And then small crimes become a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. And you get used to it along the way. How did it start? But for the broken window. That was one element of it. The other element of it is that criminals tend to be criminals. And they don't tend to be criminals once. And when you go after the people that are doing that kind of stuff, you're often going to find that they're wanted for a lot of other things. A lot of other things. 500 deaths a year in the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia, from whence our country emanates? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. I always liked that notion. Phila. Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. I always thought of it also as important because it's the city from which the Declaration of Independence comes from, where we teach that all men are created equal. There's a different kind of love in that notion, too, isn't there? How do you condition children to get used to crime? In L.A., they're doing a pretty good job of it. I'll tell you how. When we come right back, it starts with the small and ends with the large. Okay, here's an interesting song about falling in love. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I was just reading a ticker go by the Jesse Smollett, excuse me, the Jesse Smollett case is in the hands of a jury. So we'll, we'll probably know tomorrow. We'll probably get that verdict tomorrow. Do we need it? I mean, yes, the wheels of justice in his individual sense. Yes. Is there is there any question in the mind? Yes, there is question in the minds of Americans, believe it or not. There are people go to social media. <laughs> now, I know people say, well, you know, that's five or six. It's not when they have thousands of followers and it gets repeated like that old shampoo commercial and so on and so on and so on. What was that commercial? Was it for Breck? Tucson, Arizona made it on the 12 cities that have broken annual homicide records. So far this year, 80 homicides in Tucson. Did you know that, Bill? Do you have a If I were to ask you to guess how many homicides in I know it would be hard. It's not something we think about an awful lot. But would you have you would have come in a lot less than 80, I'm betting. I'm betting you would have. 
Albuquerque, New Mexico. We think of this as, you know, kind of serene, right? 82 homicides. Louisville, 175? Do you associate Louisville with Austin, Texas? Austin, Texas was a once beautiful city. I used to live there. 60. 60 homicides. Baton Rouge, 137 homicides. And as I said, Philadelphia, over 500. Indianapolis, 246. I've been there a few times. I would never have guessed Indianapolis was 246 homicides this year. You can condition a society to this. You can get used to this. You can you can amuse yourselves to death and you can kill yourselves to the death, obviously. And you can condition children to it, too. Cecily Mayart Cruz is the head of the United Teachers of Los Angeles. The, she's the head of the teachers union in Los Angeles. And she did an interview. We've talked about it here a few times earlier this year. She was asked about when kids go back to school, are the teachers worried about the loss of learning from being out of school for the previous, so much of the previous pandemic, part of the pandemic? Let me give you her quote. It's almost the worst. I, I, you can't say it's the worst if you can say it's the worst, but it's one of the worst quotes I've seen in education. She said, quote, there's no such thing as learning loss. Sure, she acknowledges, the reporter writes, that students' achievements in mathematics might have been harmed by virtual learning. But she asserts that the experience makes up for this. Quote, our kids didn't lose anything. It's okay that our babies may not have learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. They learned critical thinking skills. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. They know the words insurrection and coup. Close quote. This is the head of the Teachers Union in Los Angeles, Cecily Mayart Cruz. So by, she, she's a professional educator, and she's a professional education leader. And she says there's no such thing as learning loss, and everyone would think that means so my kids aren't falling behind in reading, writing, arithmetic, science, anything, physics, geography, world history. It's not what she means. She's using language everyone knows for an entirely different reason. And she's happy about it. She thinks it's an advantage that kids weren't in school. Why be the head of a teacher's union if you think it's better for kids not to be in school? They didn't lose anything, she says. I don't know if she knows the English language. She says it's okay that our babies may have not learned all their times tables. They learned resilience. They learned survival. Why would she say babies? Why not students? Why not children? Why not charges? Babies. Is that what you want a baby to learn? Times tables and survival and resilience? I don't even know that 
that's what you want your children learning. Survival? I mean, basic safety, sure. But throwing them into survival mode? You're on your own? They learned critical thinking skills. Well, that's what you do typically at home and in a classroom. But you do it typically at home with your parents. And you do it theoretically throughout your day at school in a classroom. They know the difference between a riot and a protest, she says. They know the words insurrection and coup, she says. I bet they don't. I actually bet you that's not true. I bet you they don't know the word coup any more than they know how to spell coup. If it were put on a teleprompter in front of Joe Biden, he'd call it a coup and think it was a car. Didn't did Barack Obama do that with Navy corpsmen? I think he did. He read it as Navy corpsmen. Corman, obviously, was what we were hoping for. They know the difference between a riot and a protest. I'm going to tell you right now they don't. They don't know that there were riots. They don't know that there were riots. I've talked to too many of them. They were shielded from the riots on TV and in the news and in their own cities. Not even Cuomo of CNN knows the difference between a riot and a protest. He said, who said protests had to be peaceful? Doesn't even know the First Amendment. That's what the First Amendment actually literally says. Who said? James Madison said. I understand he's not a Cuomo. And they know the words insurrection and coup. You want to know something? She almost says it as if these are positives that you want to condition children to like the notion of an insurrection and a coup. You want to encourage children to live in a crisis mode. Goes all the way back to the first things I said on this show today about the moral crime we, there are several moral crimes we engage in against our children, but one of them being forcing them into adulthood before they're ready. Disappearance of childhood is not a small thing. Neil Postman spent a career writing about that, the disappearance of childhood. You know who knows the difference between adulthood and childhood? Children. Children, they know the difference. I wish more adults did. I got to get to this thing about love songs and breakup songs. Are there more love songs or are there more breakup songs? I got to get to it. At some point, I will. Remind me. I have an interesting thesis on it. Bacha Unger Sargon coming on with a pretty, um, I talked about it in my monologue too, a pretty intriguing and uh and sort of delicate, sort of delicate analysis of what this society will tolerate and what it won't, and why the Cuomos were thrown out of their jobs for the wrong reasons. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. It is a delight to welcome back Bacha Unger Sargon. She is, of course, the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author. Brand new book, great book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Bacha, how are you? 
Oh, my gosh. I'm so pleased to be here with you, Seth. Thanks for having me. Not as pleased as we are. You are doing a lot of media, I know, uh, today. <laughs> Who are all these fly-by-night shows? <laughs> it's good to have you back home here in Phoenix with us. Um, Listen, I, I couldn't say no to you. Uh, I think that what you do is so important, talking to people, you know, when they're coming out of work on their way home, working-class Americans. You know, I, it's just really an honor and a privilege to be invited on. Well, you're very kind. Thank you. And you did something very honorable that I'll mention not to embarrass you some other time. Uh, and thank you for it. You probably don't even know that you did it. But I'll I, I, I before we get into too much mutual corruption here, I spent a lot of time on this column you wrote. I think it was in the New York Post, actually, that the Cuomo's were fired for the wrong things. And you we're singing the song of my people uh, here, Bacha. <laughs> yeah, you really were. Tell what me, is it about us why. that makes it so easy to empathize with the devastating effects of being sexually harassed at work and so hard to empathize with the developmentally disabled person sent back to a place where infections spread like wildfire? The point being that the Cuomos were laughing it up, getting awards, joking it up, and lying about their COVID response, which led to a lot of death and misery. And yet that's not what took them down. That's not what took them out. It was it was uh, it was revealed sexual harassment claims. And you have this really important line here. You can learn about us a lot about a society by how it treats its most vulnerable. But you can learn perhaps even more by where it places its outrage. You want to say something about this? Yeah, you know, I really, I really feel that our, something really dark was revealed about our society yeah. uh, with the story of both brothers Cuomo, because, you know, as you know, um, Andrew Cuomo, Governor Andrew Cuomo at the time, had written this edict forcing nursing homes and the homes of the developmentally disabled to take back COVID positive patients from hospitals. So he reversed it two months later because he, you know, came out how devastating it was. But it was too late. 15,000 seniors and 552 developmentally disabled New Yorkers were dead. And who knows how many of them would have survived the plague if they hadn't been exposed to people that the government, the government that they relied upon, um, hadn't exposed them to, to COVID-positive patients. It is such an outrage, Seth. It is such an outrage because who is more vulnerable than seniors and the developmentally disabled? Right. My God, like who relies on us, the media and the government more to protect them and to speak up for them because they don't really have a voice in society? And, 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 and Governor Cuomo was sending these people, signing their death warrants, and his brother was covering it up for him and, and not and covering it and it having up. it on. Exactly, yucking it up. Yucking about it up who's, with theatrical you know, who's productions. Who's a mother like that? Yep. Exactly, yep. exactly. Now, that went on. Nobody said a word. You know, Andrew Cuomo was kicked out of office for sexually harassing women. Uh -huh. And then um, Chris Cuomo, he was suspended when it came out how much he had helped his brother in his response to the sexual harassment claims. But, you know, Brian Stark at CNN reported that he was going to be let back on, That's possibly, right. back on the air. And generally, right. he was only fired when his own Me Too thing came out, That's when right. a woman anonymously accused him of having sexually harassed her 10 years earlier at a different network altogether, didn't give her name, so he couldn't defend himself. So what CNN did was they took this opportunity for soul-searching about the intermingling of political and journalistic elites, and they turned it into a story of, I'm going to say it, it's Me Too overreach. Mm. It's just Me Too overreach. And what it revealed was that, you know, our society 
you know, our, our liberal media when it comes to a woman getting sexually harassed, which is bad. Sexual harassment is bad. But it's like, why? That's what I couldn't understand. Like, it's so easy for us to sympathize and empathize with women being sexually harassed in the workplace. But it's so hard for us to empathize with people who are developmentally disabled. Like, why don't we have the same outrage? And there was just none of the same outrage stuff. It was just like, you know, a few articles about the seniors and that was it. And meanwhile, sexual harassment, is, it's so what we're saying as a society, and this is the point, is that it's worse to sexually harass somebody than it is to kill a yeah, senior. That's exactly and, and, and what that's we said. That's exactly what we said. And, you know, there was an adjunct to that, I remember, in the O.J. Simpson, Simpson case. You may disagree. I have to take a break. We can argue on the other side, but talk it out more, too, where the argument was really that uh, racism is worse than homicide. That was kind of the takeaway from the O.J. Simpson case to Botcha. Can I take a quick break and come right back? We'll have a longer segment when we come back. Sure we can thing. explore this sure a little thing. bit more and see if you agree. And I also want to know if you got pushback on this. This is a delicate thing to write about. It's a, it's a difficult thing to talk about. Botcha Unger-Sargon is our guest, deputy editor of Newsweek and the deputy opinion editor of Newsweek and the author of a great and important book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Delighted to have Batya Unger-Sargon with us, Deputy Opinion Editor of Newsweek, author of a new and important, really great book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. It's your roadmap for understanding the media, folks. It's, you know, the season to give gifts. This is a great book to give as a gift. Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy. Batya, in your column in the New York Post, the Cuomos were fired for the wrong things. Sexual harassment, not killing and laughing about it and covering it up, uh, the elderly and uh, the developmentally disabled. I was curious to know if you've gotten pushback on this from certain interest groups or people who are affiliated with interest groups or even just individuals. How controversial was I, I? I took it to be controversial. I agreed with it, but I thought it was it was brave to write. You know, I was surprised that I didn't get more pushback from, like, feminists yeah. um, or women, you know, meet the Me Too crowd, mm-hmm. which, you know, I'm, I'm a feminist, but I, you know, I thought that there would be more people. I, I did a lot of throat clearing to make clear that I think sexual harassment is terrible, and I think it's good that we can easily empathize with women who are being sexually harassed in the workplace, um, but that there's a much worse crime at stake. But I also feel I, I have this weird feeling where I I. I I, I actually, in Newsweek, allowed a man to write on this exact topic back when Governor Cuomo was fired. Um, uh, I mean, when he stepped down, um, um, the wonderful um, Siraj Hashmi wrote this great piece. You know, Governor Cuomo stepped out, down for the wrong yeah, thing. Yeah. But I, I felt like no, like um, it was, a man would have a hard time making the argument that I made because of the kind of identity sure. politics, which has sort of fueled my my desire to say it and to write it. But I, I, I really think that's not cool. Like We should let the truth come out from whoever has that insight. But unfortunately, we live in this world where that's not the case. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about uh, what you guys have done with the opinion uh, pages of Newsweek. You, you've really opened it up very wonderfully to a real, a very true free exchange of ideas. I, I appreciate that about you guys very much. But one of the things I wanted to get your sense of, how much did politics play on those two issues? How much how, would you say the COVID issue was more politicized over the last two years or the Me Too 
movement and the issue of sexual harassment has been more politicized. My view is it's the former, not the sexual harassment, but maybe I'm not seeing it right because I think it was very politicized and there was an investment in keeping the Cuomos alive, certainly CNN, but certainly also uh, the counterpoise to Donald Trump, who I guess I suppose for a while was Andrew Cuomo. There seemed to be an import in the media to keeping him alive and well was, was over COVID. Was that not, am I misreading it? No, I think that's a really interesting point. There, you do often see in the media the sense like someone's untouchable and everyone knows all the dirt on them and it's an open secret. And then suddenly there's like a little blood in the water and then everyone comes yeah. running, right? Suddenly it's like open season on this person sure. and people are coming out of the woodwork to accuse them of all sorts of things. And it's like nobody has like the integrity to either accuse them when they have power or to say, you know, maybe this is not that bad when they're losing their power, right? It's, mm-hmm. it, there's like very much this herd mentality. You mentioned about OJ. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, yeah. and I wanted to get back to that because I saw something really similar when there was a guy who shot up a bunch of um, um, sex worker parlors in Atlanta, I believe it was, yeah, that yeah. were run by Asian right. women. Right. And there was this mass push by the kind of woke left to be like, oh, another white supremacist attack. Yeah. Um, and when they caught him, he said, no, it wasn't because they were Asian. It was because he was part of some um, very extreme Christian cult yeah. where you weren't allowed to have sex. And he had visited these sex parlors, and he felt he had a sex addiction. Yeah, there was a weird and, like, psychological thing. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. He's a sociopath, so he killed the, the temptation because he couldn't avoid the temptation. Okay, sick, disgusting, whatever. But it clearly wasn't racially motivated. It was right. motivated by this, exactly, this weird psychological thing but what you saw was it was so funny like you saw well, i mean look it was a tragedy i don't want to make light of it but what you saw on the on the it was funny was, because it could have been scripted by anyone we knew what would happen that's what you mean right exactly yeah, yeah. and what they they started saying like why would you believe him right. that he why would you believe what he's telling you about why he did it and the logic there is exactly what you said it's like in their mind being racist is worse than being a murderer mm-hmm. So somebody who admitted to murder, they're like, but he would never admit that he was a racist. Right. Right? Like, right. It's like the dude just admitted to killing five women. Yeah. And they're like, but he would never admit to his real crime. And there's like this weird sense, exactly like you said, that like they actually think being racist is worse than being a murderer. It's like it can both be the case that racism is absolutely terrible, terrible trait to have, and we must do everything we can to eradicate it from society, and be the case that murder is objectively worse, yeah. and that somebody who is admitted to being a murderer is not really going to have a problem admitting to being a racist, but it's like what was revealed in that comment, you know, that kind of sick mindset, where it's like, you know, the biggest sins are like flirting with a female underling, right, you right. know, making an off-color joke, right. being racist, and then under that is like killing seniors and developmentally disabled people and murdering people, you right. know, it's like so awful. Right. There's a line I'm trying to remember it exactly, and it's too bad I can't, but it's in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man, where he talks about the modern fashion of education is to focus on the smaller thing and avoid the large thing to keep the people distracted. And it seems like that that was, you know, he wrote that in the 40s. That 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 was the fashion then. Well, it's the norm now. It's not. And it's even worse than that. Like if you ask yourself, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. um, If you if you ask yourself, why was it that the Kyle Rittenhouse trial was covered 
back-to-back, every single stupid comment that was made by the judge, every second of that trial was covered across the mainstream liberal media. But the Ahmad Arbery trial and now the Jesse Smollett trial, you barely heard a peep about them. It's interesting, don't you think? Why is that? Why were they obsessed with the one where the guy wasn't a white supremacist, right? Right. Where he actually killed people in self-defense. I think most people walking walking down the street think that he killed black people. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you. And they were obsessed with that one, but they didn't want to talk about the Ahmad Arbery case. Why? Because everyone agreed about Ahmad Arbery. Because every Republican and every conservative and every Fox News host got on there and said, thank God those racists are going to prison. So they didn't want to talk about it. Right. Right. I, th- I think that's a, I think that's an important point. I think it's going to be with us for a long time. I think it's going to trouble us for a long time. And um, I, I hope you'll stay with us on this because I, I'm really very focused on this. We have our priorities wrong. We have our uh, we have our our commitments. How would you put it? Our commitments to society and the rankings, they're, they're, they've been misordered. We're living in a misordered society right now. Our focus is on the wrong things. There's just a real fundamental lack of uh, appreciation for the sanctity of human life above all else, like that, that we are all created in God's image, that we are all equal before the law, that it is our job to ensure that, and that, you know, values like autonomy, you know, like they've just gone out the window, and instead you have this sort of, this this weird, I totally agree with you, there's something like really sick about it, like it's a, it's a, a sickness in our society, and I I don't know how to how to how to fix this stuff. What are we going to well, do? Well, we're about disordered. This? We're we're misordered and disordered right now. And I I didn't mean to do this, but you know, it's if I could paraphrase an update, C.S. Lewis, we we laugh at uh, we laugh at at murder and crime and are surprised to find rising homicide rates in our midst. Honest yeah. to God, I I mean that's what it comes down to, Bacha. I really think that. I really think that. No, we have... totally. And it's it's so funny. You saw it like like Black Lives Matter today defending Justice yeah. Smollett right. and saying we're not going to side with right. the Chicago PD against this black man. It's right. like, well, this black man tried to frame two other black men yeah. for, for assault. Like, what did he think was going to happen? They were going to go to prison. You don't care about them. Like, there's there's such a, a weird thing where we elevate the wrong things and you then bet. you can't. Yeah. The best thing that I have heard in maybe a year was from one of those brothers, by the way, on his way to court. CBS cameraman put a microphone uh-huh. in front of his face. Did you see this? He said, no, uh, tell yeah, me. he's about to test. He's going to court to testify. You know, one of the brothers that would turn state's witness and said, are you looking forward to telling your truth? He said, no, I'm looking forward to telling the truth. That's oh, a beautiful wow. sentence, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. Bacha. Thank you. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. Bacha wow, Unger Sargon. Wow. We will talk Thank to you, you, I hope, again soon. <laughs> Folks, again, Bacha Unger Sargon, her book, Bad News, How Woke Media is Undermining Democracy in the Season of Gift-Giving. That's a good one. It's approved by me. It's recommended by me. And you can read her regularly, of course, over at Newsweek and keep up with her. Her column at the New York Post. Chris Cuomo, like Andrew, was fired for the wrong thing. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. The Seth Liebson Show. We sometimes miss... <laughs> Speaking about misordering <laughs> priorities, inverting them, that's fine. It happens. Um, I found the quote that I was reaching for with C.S. Lewis, and um, it was in the Screwtape Letters, not the Abolition of Man. 
Um, I, well, the abolition of man, of course, was the one having to do with laughing at honor and being surprised to find traitors in our midst. That, of course, is the abolition of man. But the one I was talking about with Boccia, the use of fashions in thought it is, is to distract men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger and fix our approval on the virtue that is nearest the vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them all running around with fire extinguishers when there's a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat, which is already nearly gone under. But think about that. The use of fashions in thought is to distract men from their real dangers and to focus each generation against those vices of which it is in the least danger. That was kind of Botch's point, wasn't it, where the real crimes were sexual harassment, not killing the disabled and the elderly. Kind of my point about O.J. Simpson and, quite frankly, kind of the point with the obsession of vaccinating children and masking them, the vices of which we are in the least danger. Grab the fire hoses when there's a flood. That's the problem we're facing, a misorientation, a misorientation, a misorder. We've superannuated the real problems in favor of the most benign problems to fix our attention on. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. And I'll certainly give you my thesis on are there more love songs about heartbreak and breaking up or falling in love. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Class dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 